come around here tomorrow night for the for the school play. Let's open our Bibles now, if you would please, to 1 John chapter 2. And this evening we're in part number 2 of the message, The Alarm Against Antichrist. And I think what I would like to do is go right to the Scriptures this evening. I'm not going to get you a, give you a long introduction to get started here. So we're just going to open up the Scriptures here and, and uh, begin reading. So let's go to the 18th verse of 1 John chapter 2. Little children, it is the last time, as ye have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things." I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whoso denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning, If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Now, our subject tonight is Antichrist, and this is a term that is peculiar to the Apostle John. He's the only one that uses it in the Scriptures, but all that John has really done is to coin a term for a concept that's well known throughout the entire Bible. Now, that word Antichrist, that is a, that is a very, very strong word. And I know that there are people who would not want to be called Antichrist. And I'm afraid tonight that we're going to have to do that because we're going to have to look at some of the doctrines that John says that people hold that are Antichrist. And although it is a very tough term, the Scriptures use it, John uses it, and it's very appropriate. Since the beginning of time, there has been an Antichrist, Uh, When Lucifer was created as a holy angel, he rebelled against God and he fell and he became an antichrist. So he was against God and that's what antichrist means, against Christ. And when uh, Satan rebelled against God, there was a cosmic battle that began between God and Satan. It's not an equal warfare because uh, no matter what, Satan is only a creature And his rebellion against God is of a temporary nature, and it's only going to last until God uh, says it's over with, and then God overthrows that for his greater glory. When Adam was created and put into the Garden of Eden, that cosmic battle between God and Satan moved to the earth because Satan enraged or engaged God by tempting Adam and causing him to sin. And in the next few days, uh, I'm going to be talking some about this. You're going to hear to me hear me refer to this often because this battle is really the underlying cause for Christmas. Christ came into the world because of that battle, and he came to take man and restore him to what was lost in the fall. 
And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, which is the Proto-Evangelium, God said that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and between the seed of the serpent. Uh, serpent. And so right there, uh, just three chapters into the Bible, you have the groundwork for Christ and Antichrist. And from that point, the two sides are divided. Uh, one side is for God, that is pro-Christ, and the other side is against God, and that is Antichrist. As we come to our study here in 1 John, John emphasizes to his readers that there is a real danger of Antichrist. Now, they're already aware of the concept of Antichrist. They're already aware that, that uh, it, there is somewhat of a danger. Uh, you couldn't become a Christian without knowing that there are Antichrist because this is what Satan is, and this is what we've been delivered from. When we trust Christ, we've been delivered from the power of sin and death and from Satan. And so Satan is an antichrist, and those who follow him are antichrist as well. But the confusion comes over the identity of antichrist. Because an antichrist doesn't wear a sign on his forehead, and he doesn't have a t-shirt that says antichrist. In fact, the antichrist claim that they are actually for Christ, that they're not really against him. And so in order to find out who is an antichrist, you have to have ways of identifying them. And this is what... John is doing in this little epistle. He's identifying Antichrist. And he tells the people, you're living in the last times, and these Antichrists are going to appear. And so he deals with that, the appearance of Antichrist. And that's where we began the study last week. And we've been in this long, long study in the book of Revelation, and there we've been studying about the Antichrist, uh, that one person who appears in the world at the end of the tribulation, or at the tribulation time. He comes on the world scene. Uh, After the rapture, the world is plunged into chaos politically, economically, religiously. And this man will come into power who is energized by Satan. He is possessed by Satan. And he will establish a worldwide government in which he'll rule not only as a political leader, but he will claim to be God and desire to be worshipped as God. The Apostle Paul wrote about him in 2 Thessalonians 2, and he said, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So that's the Antichrist. That's that one evil person who appears at the end in order to assist Satan to do his last, uh, make his last stand against God. And so that Antichrist is going to come. But that's not the Antichrist that John is focusing on here. And he wants the people to know that although that Antichrist is coming that right now there are many antichrists that are already operating in this world. And these antichrists are actually operating under the guise of Christianity. They say that they're Christian, but they come preaching heretical doctrines. So they do claim that they're real professors of the faith, but they're not actually real Christians. Now, Peter dealt with that when he spoke about the end times, and also the Apostle Jude did as well. I want you to turn just a few pages over, if you would, towards the back of your Bible, and we're going to look at Jude. And I want us to look there and see what he has to say about them, and and hang on to this scripture, because we're going to come back to it and look at it just a little bit more in a minute. But in Jude, uh, verse number 3, 
Jude writes, Behold, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you couldn't have a more harmonious statement made between two apostles and and, and concurrence on this subject like you have here. I mean, here is a, a singular truth that's been given to Jesus and the apostles. That truth must be upheld. It has to be fought for. Jude says it needs to be contended for because this is the only message that will deliver people, deliver man from the power of Satan. Now, that's what I want to spend our time on tonight in the second part of the message, and that is there is a battle for truth that's going on right now, and the Antichrist are attacking God's truth. And so ministers of the gospel, the true gospel of Christ, have to stand up and expose this and defeat these attacks of the Antichrist. Now, Jude is right on target with John in identifying who these people are. He says, they are ungodly men who have turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And there you can substitute carnality or evil sexual desires. If you don't understand lasciviousness, then put that there. Because it includes the basis morality. And that is what John is faced with. Basis immorality, I should say. That's what John is faced with with his readers. So there are some that were there who had this mixture of Greek philosophy and Christian doctrine and that led them into purient lifestyles because they didn't believe that the sins of the flesh had actually any effect at all on the spiritual man. I'm not going to go back into that. Uh, We talked about that in the beginning of the study. We dealt extensively with this part of it, the origin of these false doctrines that John was combating. But those false doctrines gave rise to other false doctrines and to the denial of what Jude called the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So this is what John is doing. He's defending that faith in this letter. And he says that those who deny, deny this faith, these people are antichrist. And so what we have here are lessons on how to identify Antichrist, and we identify them by the doctrines that they attack. So here we find the development, again, of the doctrinal test of Christianity. And we've already discussed the moral test, which is the keeping of commandments, and the Antichrist fail these tests, or that test, on Uh, that's test of morality by by how? Or how do they fail it? Well, obviously, they fail it by immorality. And then we discuss the social test. That's the love that we have for others. And they fail that test because they have a self-love. They're selfish and sensual. They're satisfied with self. And that, in effect, is a denial of Christ. And those two tests are going to come back again because we find those intertwined in these five chapters of 1 John. So now, John takes us back to the doctrinal test. This is the way he started the letter. It's one of the three tests. How do you tell who is a Christian and who is not? Well, there is a doctrinal test that will help you. And those that fail it are antichrist. And sometimes they look good, and sometimes they sound good, but their doctrines smell really, really bad. So we're not talking here about people in Islam, and we're not dealing with Buddhists. They are also a type of antichrist, but those people aren't in our churches. 
These types are far more insidious because they have a disguise. If it was a Muslim, we wouldn't have too much trouble identifying them because they would just call us infidels and blow us up. They don't make any pretense of believing in Jesus Christ. These antichrists are much more subtle than that because they claim that they are in the Christian faith. And this is exactly what what Paul was talking about when he says that the ministers of Satan are transformed into angels of light. And so we can often find these people in the pulpits of Christian churches. Now, again, if you'll look at Jude, verse number 3, he says they have crept in unawares. That means they come in under the cloak of Christianity. And that can be really confusing to people. Uh, uh, people that are uninitiated in doctrine, it's really confusing because people are, are deceived when they look out here and they see all these different brands of Christianity. They see all the different flavors. They, they see the Heinz 57 varieties. And they have come to the conclusion that there is no consensus of truth in the Christian faith. The orthodox and the unorthodox and the heterodox, they're all mixed together. And so you find that Mormonism is accepted as Christianity as much as a straight-laced fundamental Baptist when there is a definite difference between the two that's like daylight and dark. And then to deny Roman Catholicism and say, well, that's not Christian. That's going to put you on somebody's insanity list. And yet what they believe and what we believe is the difference between heaven and hell. We have two wildly different viewpoints of Christ. We have a different viewpoint of salvation than these people, and all of us are marching under this big banner called Christianity. And so do you see how confusing that is? The world sees all the varieties, and they think that, well, Christian truth is not any different than our truth. Christianity is relative truth, just like our truth is relative truth, and there is no consensus of one defining faith. But scripturally, biblically, definitively, there is a difference. There is one truth of Christianity and there's one faith that's been delivered to the saints. And the Bible declares that truth. And the thing that will get you shut out and called a fanatic is when you insist that there is one truth and one truth only. It's not my truth, it's not your truth, it's God's truth. And it's singular One faith for all time. And folks, this is the faith by which we are going to be judged. And so when I stand here and I say, well, Mormonism is not that faith, and I say that Catholicism is not that faith, and modernism is not that faith, and postmodernism is not that faith, that puts me at odds with all of them, but not with God. See, God can't be God with an evolving truth. God can't be God with a relative truth. God can't be God with new revelation, in fact. God is the righteous standard of truth. And so John and Jude, they're both faced with this. People have crept in. They've crawled in to the church with their lies. And the problem is they're confusing people. They're they're responsible. These people are responsible for factualizing Christianity. And that's why today you have a hundred different denominations, and many of them are over a hundred, and many of them have no idea of truth, have no truth at all. Now, I think about that, and I lived in a place where in a, in a historical sense, you could see the effects of apostasy that's clearly evident. In the middle 19th century, there was a man uh, by the name of Alexander Campbell, who was a member of a Baptist church, and he began to preach that baptism was essential for salvation. Now, he lived at the time of the Second Great Awakening, 
And he and, and another fellow by the name of Barton Stone were preaching this heresy. About 30 miles or so away from my house uh, in Kentucky, there was one of the hotbeds of the Second Great Awakening, and it's called the Cane Ridge Meeting House. You can go there today. There's still this old log church that's there. They preserved it. It's inside of another building, and uh, that protects it. And this is one of the places where Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone's heresy of baptismal regeneration was really gaining traction during that time. And so over the next 30 or 40 years, that doctrine began to spread like wildfire in Baptist churches. And that false doctrine began to split churches. In Lexington, Kentucky, where I'm from, there are many, many old, old, old Baptist churches, some of them over 200 years old, and they're still meeting. And there's one particular one that comes to my mind called the David's Fork Baptist Church. And this was a church that was founded out of the traveling church that came from Virginia about the time that Daniel Boone came to Kentucky. Now, uh, by the way, I might add this as well, that all of those churches in that time were very strict doctrines of grace churches. I mean, they were original Baptists that, that came to this country and they still held to the Baptist doctrine and they spread from those eastern colonies on the, on the seaboard and they came into places like Kentucky and beyond. And David's Fork was one of these Baptist churches that was begun by a traveling church that came out of Virginia. And when this church came, they brought not only, they brought the whole church and they brought their doctrines with them. And I think that part of it's kind of interesting because it wasn't one or two people that moved out. When they settled in Kentucky, much of that entire state was settled by an entire church actually picking up and moving. They knew that there wasn't a church where they were going. There wasn't a good church there. So they just, everybody picked up and they moved the entire church. And there we have dozens and dozens of churches that were started out of that original uh, traveling Baptist church that came out of Virginia. Now, this is what happened, though, when the Second Great Awakening came to that particular area, and Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone were preaching, and they were getting into the Baptist churches with all of this false doctrine. They were very trusted men, and um, they, the people were confused by them. They were teaching their, their doctrines, and the churches were splitting over that false doctrine. And so today, you can go down the road, and, and there you'll find the David's Fork Baptist Church, which is the original church that still meets. And just a short distance away from that is the Macedonia Christian Church. That's the church that split off, and that church still preaches the heresy of Alexander Campbell. And so now you have the Christian churches and the disciples of Christ and the church of Christ that all came out of that original movement of Alexander Campbell, that heretical movement that taught baptismal regeneration. So you see what I mean by this? The doctrines in those churches were so different that those people could not meet together. So the church would split. They divided up. And the question is, how is a person saved? And one group said this way, salvation by grace through faith alone. And this other group over here says, no, you have to add to that your baptism, that you actually, they even believe this, that you contact the blood of Christ in the water. And that's how that you get saved. So one's right and one's wrong. The doctrines are different, and both of them can't be right. And that's what we still face today. Only today, those churches probably wouldn't have split. It's because today, doctrine is not a litmus test for fellowship. Doctrine gets pushed aside, and it doesn't really matter to most people. And so people come to church for the social structure and for the entertainment, 
and the doctrine really doesn't matter. You know, I think about that question that Brian Petro asked to the pastor of the New Vintage Church that's meeting in the Luther Burbank Center. They asked him what did he think about the doctrine of eternal security, and he replied, does it make a difference? He said, wait a minute, does it make a difference? Of course it makes a difference. It makes a difference whether you understand the grace of God and salvation, and your soul actually hangs in the balance over the answer to those kinds of questions. And folks, this is the very reason why we're dogmatic about our doctrine. This is why we stand on the doctrine once delivered to the saints. And quite frankly, even though I do want to be nice and I do want to be liked, if it makes me hated, if it makes me unpopular, it doesn't matter. We're not going to change our doctrine. We're not going to change it because the truth does not change. Truth does not evolve. Truth is the same today as it was in the Garden of Eden. Now, we're going to look for just a few minutes at some of the particulars of these false doctrines that John faced. Um, He called them Antichrist. There's an attack of Antichrist, and we still face those doctrines today. And the first one we'll talk about is the denial of the person of Christ. Is it possible for a person to be saved if you believe that somewhere out there in the wild blue yonder there is a God? You know, the prevailing opinion among people in most churches, is yes. Admit that there's a God and you're golden. Say that there is a God and you're pretty much on your way to heaven. And people say, well, it doesn't matter what you call him, whatever name you call him by, everybody's going to go to heaven if they will admit that there is a God. Mother Teresa believed this. Uh, She didn't even try to convert people to Christianity. In other words, she was telling people that Christ is not really necessary for salvation. Um... If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the invisible God, that's okay. Just as long as you admit that there is a God out there somewhere. Billy Graham now has a belief in universal salvation. He said that the grace of God is big enough that it can include those who are trying to do their best. And they don't really need to believe or even hear of Jesus Christ. But will that kind of teaching ever save anybody? Well, the answer to that question is no, because if you're going to be saved, you're going to have to believe in the Bible or believe in the God that's revealed in the Scripture. You must believe that this God has been manifested to man in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you don't trust him, then you don't know who God is. How plain is the Scripture on this? Well, John gives it to us in verse number 22. He says, who is a liar? Bad word. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. You see, you can't ignore that Jesus Christ is God and still believe in God. Jesus Christ is God. And if you deny him, then you deny the very God that you profess to believe in. John says here that Jesus is the Christ. Now, what does that mean? Jesus is the Christ. Christ is actually a Greek form of the word Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a description of who he is. Messiah simply means that he is the anointed one. He's the anointed one of God and essentially would have the same meaning as saying he is the only one by which you can be saved. So if you want to look at what John says here, who is an antichrist? It's the person who says that Jesus is not the only one by whom you can be saved. Or it's denied that Jesus is the one that you can be saved by at all. All of those people are antichrist. 
And so anyone who denies that is an antichrist. So how popular do you think I would be if I go around telling everybody Billy Graham is an antichrist and Mother Teresa is an antichrist? I'm not going to be too popular if I say that. I'd be about as popular as the Apostle John, and he said it first. The only problem is today nobody's actually reading what John said. Well, you think, well, uh, we can probably tone that down a little bit, and we can diffuse the controversy a little bit, and we can say, well, yes, Jesus is the Christ. We do believe that, which means that he is one of the paths to God. And there you have one of the most popular teachings today in Christian churches. I think I gave you a statistic some time ago that 60% of people in Christian churches today believe that Jesus is one of the paths to God. Now, the scriptures are very clear about this, that if he is a path to God, then he can be the only path to God. There's nobody that's delusional delusional enough to call himself God and to tell people, I am the only way that you're going to get to the Father. In essence, I am the only way that you're going to get to heaven. Nobody is delusional enough to say that and be a liar and still be, and claim this exclusivity and still be the way to heaven. You can't be a liar and be the a path to the, to the truthful God. Now what John argued about here, uh, argued against in the beginning of the first chapter, was actually a denial of the incarnation. And what that was that other than an attack on the person and the nature of Christ. And if the incarnation is not true, then you can throw out any scriptures that have to do with Jesus being God And, of course, then you can throw out anything about him being exalted to be the king of heaven and earth. If the incarnation is not true, then the miracle of the virgin birth is not true. The miraculous resurrection of Christ is not true. The correlation between the need for the sinless life of Christ and a perfect sacrifice for sins, that's gone. And what is really the whole basis of Christianity? I mean, a person who denies this must be an antichrist because this is really what being a Christian means, isn't it? I mean, preachers that don't preach on sin and death and the cross and and on hell, they're antichrist. But what people do is they push those doctrines out the door of Christian churches in favor of a whopping good time and shouting and rock music and dance and all of that. Christianity is shoved out the door with it. And churches become social, secular clubs when they don't have those doctrines. But the virgin birth, the incarnation, the resurrection are doctrines that are not any longer considered to be essential doctrines of the Christian faith. So people say. And so they say you can be a Christian without those things. But without those, you don't have the gospel. The message of the Bible from cover to cover is this message. And when churches deny that message, should we wonder why that they don't preach from the Bible? We wonder why they've abandoned the Bible? There's no secret here. I mean, this is not something hard to find out. When you see what the Bible says and you don't believe that, then what are you going to do? Throw the Bible out the door. So they deny the person of Christ. And secondly, they deny the work of Christ. And what is the work of Christ? Well, his work is to be the sin bearer. A Christ's work is to be the sacrifice for sins. The Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15 speaks of it. There when it says that Satan would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, it's talking there about the cross. Jesus would go to the cross, and there he would be a sacrifice for sin. And that's his work in the atonement. 
And if there is no atonement for sin, then we don't need Christ. You see, the atonement is a defining mark of Christianity. There is no other religion on the face of this earth that has an atonement. There are no other religions that deal with the sinful nature of man, that deal with the forgiveness of sins, that have an atoning sacrifice. And so why would you call something less than that Christian? If that's not necessary, then we can become Muslims and we can become Buddhists. And how many times have we been told, well, Islam is a peaceful religion and it teaches people that they need to live good lives. And the Hindus and the Buddhists, they teach that too. I mean, the Hindus won't even hurt a bug. They're afraid they step on him, they're going to kill an ancestor. Now, is that good enough for us? We really don't need Christianity except for the work of Christ. Because if being good people is all that it takes, then we can be anything we want to be. Any any religion's going to do. And then thirdly, there's a denial of the relationship of Christ. Look at verse number 23. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledges the Son hath the Father also. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes very well on this. He says, now this is very high doctrine. But you remember that our Lord himself has already indicated the same truth in the fifth chapter of John's Gospel. What it really amounts to is this. There is no real doctrine of the Father and of God except in the terms of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we deny the person of Jesus Christ, we do not know the Father. We've lost him. We may be living with some vague belief in God as a power or a force or someone who can help us in a moment of need. But the teaching of our Lord himself, as it is the teaching of all the New Testament apostles, is that there is no such thing as true knowledge of God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. You can believe in a creator, you can believe in some unseen influence, but you will never know the Father except in the Son. He that hath seen me, said the Lord, has seen the Father, John fourteen nine. So to deny the Son is to deny the Father. We do not know God as the Father except in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm sure that you can see from that that any foolishness that says that you can understand who God is without Christ could not be a way to heaven. John chapter 1 says that Christ is the one who reveals the Father. And so what that means is that without Jesus Christ, you are staring at an opaque wall. It's just like staring at a brick wall. You can't see through it. You can't understand God without a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so you can't lump everybody into Christianity that doesn't understand the person, the work, and the relationship of Christ to God. And that's why Mormons can never be Christians. And that's why Jehovah Witnesses will never be Christians. It's because they deny the equality of the Godhead in the relationship between Christ and the Father. Now that brings me to another very important doctrine which is pertinent to the inclusion of Mormons, JWs, and and frankly even Roman Catholics. And fourthly is the denial of the Trinity. I'm going to deal with this in a Christmas message coming up, but the virgin birth is actually an essential doctrine of the Trinity. Without it, you you, you, you don't need it unless Christ is God. Unless God is a Trinity, you don't need the virgin birth. Jesus Christ is actually the one who unlocks the mystery of the Trinity. And by that, I don't, don't mean that we perfectly understand what the Trinity is because we can't understand it. There is no adequate explanation how God could be three in one. 
But without the revelation of Christ, we could never even know about the Trinity. I can't know the Father except through the Son. And when I know the Father, that's the only time that I can come in contact with the Holy Spirit and understand who He is. And so if you subtract the Son of God out of this equation, if you take Him out and what the Bible says about Him, then you've lost everything. You don't know anything about God. You can't understand the Trinity. You will reject it if you mess up on who Jesus is. And John is very concerned about this because if you subtract those essential doctrines, then what's left to the people he's talking to is this fruitless result of the Gnostic doctrine. Where did it get them? I mean, they're left out here swimming in a sea of man's philosophy, not knowing who God is. It gets him nowhere. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, the world by wisdom knew not God. You're not going to get God out of philosophy. And isn't this what we're trying to find out? What is religion but the search for God? Find out who God is. And those that are astute enough to know that there is something that transcends this universe, that who, someone that we must answer to without Jesus Christ, even though they might have that, that they know that something transcends all of this without Jesus Christ, they're left wandering in no man's land. There's nowhere to go without him. And so when you follow a false Christianity that downgrades Christ as simply being a moral teacher, being a good example to follow, or, as in Mormonism, being the brother of Satan, then you don't have the same Jesus that's in the Bible. And if you take away his essential nature as being the incarnate Son of God, who is the manifestation of the Father, then you don't have the same Jesus that's in the Bible. And John says that those who teach these things are antichrist. There's no pretense here. This is not hard to find out here. There's not a shaky answer to this. It's very clear. Antichrists have been around since the Garden of Eden, and they keep doing the same things over and over and over again. What do they do? They deny the essential fundamental doctrines of who God is. Now, there are some doctrines that are non-essentials to salvation. You know, I was asked by someone a while ago, Define non-essential doctrines. And I was stuck on that one. Because really, in one sense, all doctrines are essential. I mean, doctrine, this is the way that we find out God. And to the extent that you don't know some doctrine, then you know that much less about God. That's what doctrines do for us. They explain to us who God is. But you can get some of those doctrines wrong and you can still be a Christian. You'll still be saved. If not, then every one of us would have to have perfect knowledge of all doctrines. I wouldn't be able to make a mistake of any kind. We couldn't miss even one Bible text and get to heaven if every doctrine in the Bible was essential for our salvation. So don't come to the forum class anymore because the first time you ask a question, you just admit it, I'm a lost sinner. I can't be saved if I ask questions. So we know that's not the case. We, 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 don't know, we don't have perfect knowledge of all the doctrines that are in the Bible, but there are some doctrines that you can't miss. There are some that are absolutely fundamental. They are essential to the faith, and without them, you cannot be a Christian. You can't compromise on any of them. Now, I didn't explain all the things that we talked about tonight, but all these doctrines that I've just mentioned, these are essential doctrines for your salvation. You can't miss these. You can't mess up on them. And you say, well, you didn't fully explain all of that. Well, that's what the whole ministry is about. 
I mean, that's why we give hundreds and hundreds of sermons for over years and years and years to help people to come to a fuller understanding of these doctrines. We're not all the way there yet. But we sure can't deny them. Even when we don't understand them, we can't deny them. Because they're in the Word of God. God says it. We believe it. It's all you need to know. Well, it's not all you need to know. That's why you need me. That's why I'm preaching to you. But if you don't understand it, accept it because God's Word says it. And then we'll work through it as we go along. So these are very, very basic doctrines. They can't be missed. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the manifestation of the Father. He came to deliver this world from sin. There's an atonement. He came to make us right with God. He died on the cross. He paid for sins. He arose from the grave. And that's the promise of our justification. All of that is essential doctrine. You cannot deny one of those and be a Christian. Now, I know there are people who say, well, the thing that you need to do, you need to give the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, tell them how to be saved, and that's all you need to be saved. And there's a sense in which, of course, that would be true. I mean, you don't come into the Christian faith understanding everything that I've just said. You, you go to a person and you give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they believe that. They believe that they're saved from their sins. They understand that they're a sinner. They must repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. They understand that. And if they do truly understand that, they're saved. And when they are saved, then the Holy Spirit begins to open up all these other things. There is nobody that's saved, according to the Apostle John, who denies that Jesus Christ is God. That's an impossibility. Do you think the Holy Spirit wouldn't reveal that to you at the very moment that you could say that Jesus Christ is God? Jesus Christ is manifested in the flesh. Jesus is not the brother of Satan. Jesus is very God of God. Of course the Holy Spirit reveals that to you. And if you don't know that, you can't be saved. So that's what I mean by this. You can't deny Trinity. You can't deny the manifestation of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the virgin birth, and things like this, and be saved people. The Holy Spirit does not coexist with that kind of false doctrine. And this is what John says. You cannot be Christ and Antichrist at the same time. So we have a warning here against this. John says you miss these things and you miss heaven. And what he's doing here, he's given us the identity of Antichrist. There is a doctrinal test, and that's what he's dealing with right now. You can't deny any of these. If you do, you're an Antichrist. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have to look into your word tonight. I ask you, Lord, that you would open our, our hearts to the truth of this. And I know, Lord, that, that I assume everybody here agrees with what I'm saying tonight. Um, but there is a truth that has to be held to. And not only do we have to believe it here, but we have to believe it out there. And we have to confront those who are antichrist every day with all these false doctrines that are floating around and people are are preaching, and we have to stand against that, make a defense for the faith, as Jude says, earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And that's what we want to do in Berean Baptist Church. Bless your people, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.